Welcome to the West and North London podcast, where we sit down each and every week to answer your big Arsenal questions. I'm Caleb. And I'm Tim. And, and I'm Chris. Is, oh, oh, Chris. Sorry. <laughs> jumping, jumping the gun. No. <laughs> Chris Ledvetter is here to join us for this North London Derby post-match recap. So we, we needed... We need to, to we needed some more voices to spread this out a little bit and, and get some more maybe maybe some positivity. I I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna say that Chris is feeling any more positive than us. <laughs> um but Chris, tell us how, how you came to be an Arsenal fan. Oh, good question. Um let's see. I'm in my early thirties now. I've probably been following Arsenal since I was uh maybe eleven or twelve. This is, uh, it goes all the way back to the Fox sports world days, um, way back when, and when that's really the only way you could watch, uh, you know, consistent soccer, European soccer on TV. And that was, uh, I think a, a couple of years before, uh, the invincibles and, and I just started watching them as a kid and, uh, really just kind of fell in love with the way Arsenal played. And, and they were kind of one of the teams that was featured you know, often on the channel. And, and like I said, I watching the, the way Arsenal plays the beautiful game. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, once you pick it up, it's hard to put down. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> I think that's like the era that most people we talked to ended up kind of falling in love with the team. But I think my, my usual follow-up question is like, do you feel like they still play that way? But I, I don't, I don't, do I want to bring you down? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fair. I, I think, uh, you know, those of us who have been watching that long, you know, the, the majority of the Wenger era, um, wish that we can get back to that style of play, but also with trophies, you know, <laughs> we've, we've had some trophies in recent years, even though, uh, I think, you know, at times the play has been a little bit different than, than back in the Wenger era, but you know, Beggars can't be choosers, right? Right. I mean, right now it's not looking like we're going to get either this year, but I do yeah. need a good trophy. So, yeah. All right. Well, I'm I'm already drinking, and I'm I'm guessing <laughs> that there's some other <laughs> other drinks happening. Uh, Tim, what do you what do you got cracked open this week? Uh, this week, you may recognize the brewery because it's pretty much the only brewery I go to to pick up beer. Don't go in there, but I pick up beers. Uh, Menace Brewing. I'm doing their uh, Two Roofs IPA, which is a IPA that uh, the proceeds go to help the uh, domestic violence shelter up here in uh, Bellingham. So it's drinking with a cause. How about you? Um, I'm still working on this uh, Kona IPA that I'm not loving, but I got I got to gotta get through it. So. <laughs> You know, you drink what you got in front of you, so it, it's all—it's all right. It's not the worst thing I've ever had, but could be better. Yeah, it's—it's it's drinkable at least. Yeah, I've only had one beer that I couldn't drink, and it was like a store brand at Costco. I think it was called Game Time or Touchdown. It was just like <laughs> a knockoff of Coors, and I literally had one and couldn't drink it. I just Tim, I, I've known you for a long time, and I think you're better than that. <laughs> maybe you gotta you gotta have some standards yeah uh, standards <laughs> overrated 
How about you, Chris? You got anything uh, in front of you? Yeah, I'm just uh, going to crack open a, uh, a Northwest Pilsner from Hellbent. Right on. Yeah, Hellbent Brewery. I love Hellbent. I have a soft spot for Hellbent because that's I, I watched us win our first MLS Cup there. The Sounders, I should say. <laughs> I never actually been there for a match. Uh, I, I started going when when COVID, you know, began, and you know, where everybody's trying to support your local pubs and your small businesses. And I said, you know, why the hell not? Let me go down and and get a case of beer. And I think I've been there three times throughout, <laughs> to, just long enough to to grab a case uh, on my way home from work sometime. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, Tim, you got a question for us this week? Yeah. So not dealing with really what happened during the week, but uh, as you may have read, uh, Wrexham has just been bought by uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney. I don't know how to pronounce that very well. I think it's McElhinney. McElhinney. That's, that looks about right. He's, he's a <laughs> Mac from, uh, from Always Sunny in Philadelphia fame so it just got me thinking like we all probably are not the hugest fans of our current ownership so i was wondering what uh movie stars or stars if you had to have a a a movie star or some sort of celebrity own the team who would you have and why oh i'm trying to think of like celebrities who are already gunners um idris elba big big gunner I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that either. Um, so he might be a good candidate. Uh, you know, you just want people who get it, right? Who understand what Arsenal's supposed to be. So I don't know if I'd take any old celebrity. It'd have to be somebody who's in into into soccer, right? Yeah. Because we just end up in the same place we are now, where you have guys who just don't understand. That's true. What about you, Chris? I, I I thought about this one a little bit, and I, I came up with three, and and I think I'll, and I'll I'll tell you why. So, um, first one being Chris Pratt, and so the reason I say him is he's a local guy here in the Seattle area, and we are doing the West of North London podcast. So I thought I'd throw in a little Seattle connection there. <laughs> right, he's pretty pretty recognizable name these days with the movies he's done. Um, second one, I would say The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He's a big sports guy, big businessman, um, kind of all about mental toughness. Something I think our club could use a little bit of right now. And uh, kind of the funny pick as the last one would be Mark Wahlberg. Now I know he's he's a big like New England sports guy. I get that. But I feel like uh, I feel like if he just walked into the dressing room, he could intimidate the hell out of somebody who's not willing to, to you know, work hard enough for the shirt that they're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> and those are all great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was kind of going down the road. Like Jay-Z was the name that popped into my mind just because, again. I thought about him too. Yeah. <laughs> just someone who can go right into the locker room and just kind of, A, connect with the players, but B, intimidate the crap out of the players at the same time. So. And he owns, I think, the Brooklyn Nets, right? Yeah, he owns yeah. an NBA team. I was going to say the Rock bought like the whole XFL league, didn't he? Oh, did he really? 
Yeah, I think he's trying to run that and kind of got dealt a bad hand with COVID. Well, I think that's how he was able to buy it for like dirt cheap. I think he, he bought it for like pennies on the dollar compared yeah. to what people were paying for uh, buy-in previous to it getting yeah. shut down. Did Seattle, does Seattle still have an XFL team? Well, I don't know if anybody has an XFL team right <laughs> yeah, I'm now. I'm not sure because they, like, they started and then I think they were only a few weeks in and then the world got shut down. So I, I really haven't heard if if like they hit pause and if they're going to survive and try again uh, or not. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, it's going to be a different a different world by the time they get back into it. All right. Well, that's... Um, that's that's an interesting thought. It, it just just the idea of having a celebrity owner is kind of weird. Uh, yeah. But you know, we've we've had we see it a lot now with the uh, MLS teams just getting massive ownership groups of multi celebrity uh, yeah. conglomerates, which is kind of uh, a new trend. But apparently, it's spreading into European football with Wrexham and some of these other celebrity owners. Well, I'm okay. Imagine. Like if they, if, if they try and come in and they don't really know the game and they're trying to, to run stuff, that's kind of, I'd be like, if I was a supporter of that club, I'd be like, get off my lawn. You don't know what you're doing, but I'll take your money. <laughs> that's pretty you much know? what Rexham did. Was like, Rexham was actually a fans owned club, which is kind of a shame that it, it went to private <clears throat> ownership, but they unanimously voted to have yeah. the celebrity ownership because I think they just, I mean, what they, they're like fourth division, I think, or fifth division. So they, I mean, that amount of money at that level is going to have them skyrocket up no matter what. Yeah. I think the, the problem with some of these smaller teams is like, it's, you could, you could dump a bunch of money into them, but it, it's a, it's a losing proposition for years until you can get to a level where you can actually make the money back. And I don't think, a lot of these lower division clubs actually can make money until they at least reach championship level. I think it's, and even then it's still pretty tough. You got to wonder, like I haven't, I didn't hear uh, like what the price was to buy the club or anything like that. But I mean, so many clubs are struggling right now. You got to wonder if, you know, Ryan Reynolds got that for like dirt cheap, you know, I'm sure they got it for, for, for extremely cheap. And yeah. from what I read, they, they, they put in are putting in like 20 million pounds yeah. into the team right away. As a He's got that gin money. <laughs> yeah. Didn't he make a ton? Of, I think he sold that for like millions of dollars, like multi-million dollar sale of his, his gin brand. It's like, I, I'm doing the wrong thing with my life. I think be <laughs> buying liquor brands and selling them off. I mean, I think that's maybe the other trend with celebrities buying, you know, buying into big businesses with, with him doing gin and, and Clooney was in the tequila business and, you know, so they can they use them as branding basically. Yeah. And the nice thing about gin and tequila that's very different from whiskey is that it's a, a much cheaper and you don't have to age the stock like you do a whiskey. So yeah, makes sense. So if I'm going to get into whiskey, you're saying I need to buy now. And then plan on cashing out in like 10 years. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, we, we could drag our feet on this a bit longer, but I think we gotta, we gotta dive in. We gotta get it. We gotta rip the bandaid off. Um, <clears throat> although maybe, maybe we could go in a little bit lighter here and, and start by talking about the Europa league 
last week because that's that's been the bright spot, right? That's <laughs> that's the thing that's keeping me going as an Arsenal fan right now. Um, nice. go ahead, Dim. Sorry. So I was just going to say, what were your positives out of that that rapid game? What do you think, Caleb? I man, I I don't know what we got to do to get Reese Nelson into the first team, but that guy needs some more minutes. I, he he's he's just on the brink. I feel like he's been on the brink since he came back from loan to Germany. I think he's just kind of hovering around that uh, breakthrough moment. And I, I think when he's at his best, he's been, he he could be in the conversation with, with like Saka and Tierney. Um, but he just hasn't had consistency um, to, to make the case for being a, a first team player all the time. And the fact that he didn't make the lineup or even the bench, um, for the Tottenham game was a bit concerning. I, I'm, I'm not sure if that was just based on the minutes that he played in uh, the Europa League game, but uh, I, I'm just, I'm just waiting for uh, Arteta to catch up on on Reese Nelson because I feel like he's he's primed to to make that breakthrough if he can get some consistent time. So who who do you drop if you're going to bring in Nelson consistently? Uh, William. Like no, no doubt. <laughs> and, and I, I would, I would share the mints between Pepe and, and Reese Nelson. I, William mm-hmm. should not be in the conversation really, because if you're going to put money, uh, yeah, if you're going to put the money into Pepe, William shouldn't get as much minutes as he's getting. Um, and if you want a, a, a player for the future, I think you, you continue to d- try to develop Reese Nelson. If, if, if only to sell him off later, at least I think he's a sellable asset. If you can get him the playing time and put him in the shop window. Yeah, that would I think certainly help solve some problems out at that position. I think to to me with kind of between Pepe and Willian, you know, we had Pepe last year. We we know all about that. You know, Willian's we we understand his pedigree, but he's new here. He's thirty what thirty two, thirty three. Uh, it's almost getting to the point now where we're in December, where at right wing you have to pick your poison, and if we can shore up that position even with a youthful player uh i think that would help solve some problems i mean just getting any production out of that position right now yeah. is, i just watch william i just i and i understand that sometimes players take time to bet in yada 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 but like he should be taking very not as much time as he is and just show something there, like i just there's just that one game against fulham where he looked decent and i think we held on to that for a long time but I can't see him. I, I don't see any positives out of him, but I would be fully in favor of giving Nelson at least a run of games, like three, four games, just to see if he can produce anything. And yeah, I mean, we're in towards the bottom of the table, you know, so it's not going to get much worse. Could, but... <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> Well, and, and this would have been a great run to see Nelson get more minutes just with um, Pepe not being available um, in the Premier League. I just, yeah. it, it uh, maybe we see him against Burnley this week, but I, I feel like Nelson's kind of solidified his, his role as a Europa League player. And uh, I don't know what it's going to take to, to push past that, but he, he's, he's been a bright spot for, for the Europa League team. And, and I think, Surprisingly, Pepe looks very competent in that in that uh, competition. I don't know if it's just a comfort level. Uh, I think he's 
capable of being better than a just a Europa League pay, player. I don't think he looks out of place in the pr- Premier League, but um, yeah, he di- he just seems like a little bit more at ease with his game, and maybe it is just a competition level sort of thing, and like that's, um, you know, he's he's maybe not. I wouldn't say he's not ready for the Premier League. He's just not at his best. So I'm not sure what what has to change to make that happen. But I'll take the goals wherever they come from. Because mm-hmm. right now, if I, without him scoring in the in the Europa League, and you know we've got a couple other guys in there who are solid goal scorers, I nobody else is scoring on Arsenal. I mean, it's it's only happening in the Europa League. So yeah. I don't know how you translate that. How you bring in those players? How you get some of that energy into the Premier League, but it's it's like a night and day difference. Yeah, I mean, Chris, like, what do you think about Pepe? Do you do you think do you think he has a future with Arsenal? Is it is it too late, early to tell, or do you what do you what do you what are we doing with him? I I think, I mean, I've been as, as frustrated as anybody with. Uh, I mean, it's it, in the the production in the Premier League. I, in, in the in the cup games, I, I felt like he's featured fairly well. But in general, the competition we're having, especially in the Europa League, you know, in the group stage, those are games we just are expected to win. So you would expect somebody to take their chances in those games in Pepe's position. I, I think if once, obviously, once he gets off his suspension in the league. Uh, assuming he comes is is allowed to come right back into the team by Arteta, I think he just needs a run of games where he's you know on the score sheet with a goal or an assist, maybe you know three four games in a row or three out of five, you know four out of six, where he can get a little bit of confidence. You know, kind of every time I see him when when he tries something on the pitch that doesn't quite come off you can just kind of look at his body language for me and, and tell that he, he doesn't seem like he just has that drive to push past the mistake, have a, have a short memory and, and go at it again. Um, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that I was listening to another podcast and I unfortunately forget which one, but they were talking about perhaps Pepe would benefit from having a crowd in the stadium because yeah. they would, cheer when he would try one of these things instead of that just hearing Arteta yelling at him for losing the ball he could say like well I tried it once and it didn't come off but the crowd appreciates my efforts at least which I thought was an interesting take on it yeah I think that's a good point I think sometimes you know the supporters can can kind of sense when when players or the team in general just kind of need that little push like hey we see your effort you know and we'll encourage it by by cheering for you uh, and sometimes players, yeah, that, that kind of makes them feel warm and fuzzy for a second and it, and it pushes them on. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Pepe could use probably a little bit of that backing. Yeah. And I think, I think the playing time, it, it, just the consistency and position, um, getting opportunities to gel with whether, you know, Bellerin on that side or whoever he gets paired up with. I think there's, a lack of cohesion down that right-hand side. Um, and we've, we've seen Bellerin's game suffer a bit lately. I I don't feel like it was that long ago where I was like, yeah, Bellerin's back. I'm so glad he's mm-hmm. finally back in his top form. But just like everybody else, it seems like right now, um, he's kind of slid in, in form. And 
I think um, a lot of the tinkering that Arteta has been doing to try to find that, that, um, that best 11 for Arsenal, I, I, I do think it's hurting some of the chemistry and, and Pepe suffers from that because I feel like it, it, there's been moments where like, I, I see the passing between him and Bellerin, like really, um, start to come together and then they get separated because William starts coming in or Cedric gets some, some minutes on that side. And it seems like that all goes out the window. So I don't know it, why they, there can't, doesn't seem to be like any, um, cohesion on the right hand side, like there is down the left, but, uh, just, I, I, there's got, there's gotta be these pockets of chemistry throughout, throughout the whole field. And I think right now we can point to the left and say, okay, we got that figured out. You can slot in a bombing Saka tyranny, whoever it is. And there seems, it seems to work, but then everywhere else, it just, there's so much tinkering going on. I don't even know if the players ever feel comfortable. Yeah, I think go. I mean, down that right hand side, you know, I I think Bellerin gets he gets forward well. You know, he's got the legs to get up and down. Um, it's, sometimes he can put in a great ball. Some days he's a little bit off there. The thing with combining to me with Pepe is is when I see Pepe get the ball at his feet, he likes to stand there for a minute. I mean, kind of like Neymar does except mm-hmm. he is nowhere near the trickery or quickness of Neymar or, or player like that. I think maybe in France he did and he could get away with standing you up and then kind of just, you know, dropping a shoulder, then going by you. Uh, but I think he's maybe finding in the premier league that, you, you know, you may get by somebody, but you're going to get clobbered at least a couple of times. Uh, and so I feel like he, he's not necessarily confident as he may have used to have been on the dribble. And then if he gets by you going towards the byline, he's got no right foot to cut back. And so kind of every time I see Pepe get the ball, I'm expecting him to, to try and cut into the, you know, to the top of the box and, and try and curl one. But I think defenders have seen him do that on tape so many times it's easy to defend. And then I think when, when Pepe stands with the ball at his feet, I think Bellerin thrives on movement and overlapping and, you know, getting down to the line to cut one back. And when the ball just stops, Bellerin has got nowhere to run. Yeah, I see. I see Pepe just try to like take on two or three guys more often than not, and, and, yeah. and instead of picking his head up and looking for that pass. Yeah. So if he could use Bellerin as a as a way to get through those those defenders, yeah. as opposed to trying to do it all on his own, I think there, there's an opportunity for um, breaking down that right hand. Um, right-hand side a little bit more if they learn how to play off of each other. Cause I don't think either one of them is, is capable of doing it on their own. Yeah. I'd like to see like if, if Pepe can get the ball and instead of just kind of stopping dead, if he can kind of keep moving forward and then either, you know, try and maybe play a quick little one, two with, you know, with Lacazette uh, or Aubameyang, if he's tucked in or, or on the wing with, with Bellerin, I think that movement can get him to the space that he wants. But I think, like I said, every time he just kind of stops at it, it kind of becomes a black hole. And then guys around him, you run out of space really fast doing that. Well, hearing you talk about like him, him slowing it down and, and kind of stopping the ball. It's, it's, it's not just him that seems to want to do that. And mm-hmm. it's been a frustration I've had with the whole team lately is that it's just, there's no, 
speed involved in the build-up play mm-hmm. and the um you know i shaka's the, the like one of the worst but um you know just moving the ball forward and keeping a rhythm and um just forcing defenders to react and I, it's just not happening right now there's just no no speed of play and i think pepe would be somebody who could benefit from that just his directness um would benefit from having some quick passing in that, in that area and just putting his foot on the ball and, and slowing things down. It, it just allows defenders to get in the way. And, and, and yeah. like you said, it doesn't allow Bellerin to make runs. It doesn't allow anybody around him to do anything because they, <laughs> they're just waiting for the turnover to happen because it seems that mm-hmm. that's inevitable. Yeah. And it just becomes, it becomes so easy to defend when, when the attacking team just slows down even for just a couple of seconds, it, it allows you to get tighter to your marks. It allows you to uh, you just kind of keep your shape or get back into your shape. If you were, if you were stretched a little bit defensively and, and then, you know, in the final third, you, you like I said, you run out of space really fast. And if you don't have the creativity on the ball, uh, like some of the top teams do in the premier league, you know, you think of like David Silva, uh, guys like that who can just, pass and move, pass and move, pass and move you to death in the final third until something finally opens up. We, we're not that type of team right now that can break you down. I think like we used to be when we had like a, God forbid I say Sam or Nazri. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely indicative in the, in the style that at least the, uh, we'll call it the premier league team is playing. Um, it, it's it, like I said, it's night and day when you compare it to, um, what, the Europa league team is doing as far as the passing and moving that they're thriving on it. You you see the young players and that seems that there's kind of an understanding of where they're going to be, what they're going to do, which is not, is not coming over to the premier league side. And and that's where all the aimless crossing is happening because it doesn't seem like there's any uh, anticipation of runs. There's no, there's no runs happening. So how can you anticipate it? Um, it's just, it, there's no cohesive strategy or understanding between the players of, as to what each player needs. Because I think if you're talking about crossing the ball endlessly, it, it doesn't, who does that match up with? Like who, what player is looking for that? Right. And we, yeah. we'll, we'll talk more about that. <laughs> who's your proper number nine that's going to get on the end of those crosses is what, what we're lacking. Yeah, his name's Olivier Giroud. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, but I, and Chris story. actually brought up something interesting earlier when we were talking about Pepe that I, I noticed during this game, which is that uh, you know he gets he tries to go past someone and then he gets clobbered <clears throat> in the Premier League, and I think that was kind of what got him sent off <laughs> the mm-hmm. other game. And I noticed in this uh, rapid game, he was starting to get frustrated about the attention he was getting from the other team. And he was mouthing off to players. And I think he pushed a player at one point during the game. So is that a worry with Pepe that he's kind of not used to the the, the type of physicality that he's going to see? Yeah. I, and I think, I mean, uh, I've been a defender for a long time and an outside back for a long time. And, and those kinds of guys who, I mean, e- even somebody like you've never seen, never played against in, you know, in, in rec league in GSSL, 
that you're playing against, it's after you go in a tackle or two and you see him get frustrated, you're like, okay, I know how to push that guy's buttons and you're going to do it the rest of the game. And the total contrast to that is, I mean, these guys are worldwide recognized players. There's tons of tape on them. Obviously the defenders prepare ahead of every game. If you're going to be matched up against Pepe as, as you know, the opposing teams left back, I know already exactly how to push his buttons. And I, I feel like back to your point, Tim, uh, I feel like Pepe is almost trying to demand respect from his days in France where he was one of the top goal scorers in, in that league. And, but he hasn't done anything to earn that respect where he is now. And I think he, he thinks it's translated to his new club, but in reality, that's not the case. And so he gets frustrated. He gets, you know, frumpy when things aren't going his way, but he's not willing to put in the work to, to want it more than that defender who's beating him every time. And I think the guys that um, are successful in making that transition learn that a you gotta you gotta learn how to body up on these when they these defenders come at you 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 can't you're either gonna be become a master at uh, earning fouls or you're gonna mm-hmm. just get run over and and look ridiculous because if you if you do it right you you can use it to the team's benefit and get, get um, right. free kicks in, in dangerous positions or, you know, penalty kicks or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's something that you can use to your advantage. If you're, if you're trying to dribble past guys and you play it right, then that's, that's something that, that can help your game. But if you're not going to do that, you've got to bulk up. You like the guys that see the other path seems to be like you get stronger and you learn how to hold off those defenders and you don't get frustrated. You just figure out how to get through them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the middle path, the path that, that, that seems to go nowhere is what Pepe may be struggling with is that you can't, you can't play the game that you played before in, in France mm-hmm. or in any other league. The Premier League is what it is, and unless you step up to it, it's it's going to eat you alive and spit you back out the other side. And you you can't you can't be in the middle ground there. You have to figure out a way to to yeah. use it to your advantage. I just I think there's a lot going on mentally with Pepe. You know, it's it's easy to speculate just watching him on TV once or twice a week. You don't really know the guy. You know, I'm not if I'm Arteta, I'm not sure. If, if you need to just wind him up in training and piss him off to the point where he wants, you know, he, he fights harder and harder. Some people you can do that with, uh, or, or I don't know if he's, he just, Arteta needs to take him aside and put his arm around him and say, Hey son, what's bothering you <laughs> and let him get it out. And I'm not sure which, which way that is going to go. Um, so that we can get the best out of best out of him. I, I think he's got all the capability. It's just hasn't quite come as easy as maybe his the rest of his career um, has been prior to this. Yeah. yeah, the the people that that hit that adversity and don't step up to it, I think maybe that's something that Arteta saw and was like, mm-hmm. eh, maybe this isn't the guy for me because mm-hmm. I'm going to go out and get William who I, <laughs> who can play the same position. Right. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's an attitude and a work rate and uh, just, um, just an overall type of player that 
Arteta wants in this team. And clearly uh, uh, Pepe hasn't quite um, gotten to the level that Arteta was happy with. Otherwise, I don't think we'd have a William in this team. Um, mm-hmm. And I, same could be said for, for Reese Nelson playing that same position. It's just like there's... Um, we're just dumping a bunch of money into that right wing role and it, it's not quite working out right. So I, I don't know what the long-term plan is for that. If Pepe overcomes this, that would be great. Um, if Reese Nelson can find some minutes, that'd be great. If William could just go away, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't really know, but I think there's lots of areas that need to improve and it's frustrating to, to throw, a lot of money at that position and still not have it working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the one positive or not the one, but the, the biggest positive I got out of that rapid game was the uh, Lacazette goal. I thought it was a very pretty goal and it was nice to see him scoring again. So yeah, really that, caught, through that one. Yeah. It caught me off guard. That's for sure. <laughs> I think it caught everyone off guard. I mean, there's a little talk that the uh, rapid keeper could have uh, done a better job with it, but you know what? I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it didn't really translate into the next game, but uh, yeah, fits and starts with Laka for sure. I hope he he. I think the the thing that has um, you know, he he does seem to be a player who builds builds his confidence with playing time and uh, opportunity, but mm-hmm. I think the the way that they're playing. I'll go back to the different styles. The way that they're playing in Europa League fits what Laka wants to do much better than what they're doing in the Premier League. I just like what what is he's playing a, like a number ten role in the Premier League, mm-hmm. and or he's supposed to get on the end of crosses. Neither one of those are what I yeah. would associate with Lacazette. I think he's uh, for for me. I think his. You know, his, his skills and abilities for the level that they need to be as a number nine in the Premier League, uh, I think, you know, have been waning a little bit over the last, you know, year or so. Uh, and I think will continue to wane slowly until he leaves. Um, what I like about Laka is every time you see him, you know, he's taking the shot. If he gets stuffed, he's, he's frustrated. Um, every time he, you know, he doesn't really ever play 90 minutes anymore. You see him when he's coming off in the second half, he's almost always, he just looks like he's just spent an enormous amount of energy and got nothing out of it. But I think the effort is there. I just, I think, you know, one guys have played him enough times where they learn how to play him around the league and, and two, he's getting a little bit older. And I think some of his quickness and skill that he used to rely on, isn't always in his locker anymore. Um, he's almost kind of the inverse of, of Pepe to me is I think Pepe's got the ability, but he doesn't have the mental part. It doesn't have that effort that you see at a Lacazette and some other players sometimes. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, it is admirable that Laka keeps trying and, and continues to fight for his, his position. Um, and I, I, he, he continues to play hard, even though I think he's getting put in a role that doesn't suit him. So I think yeah. continuing to fight when it's not going your way, um, in that sense, you know, he's 
he's doing everything you you want from from your players. Uh, and when he does get those goals here and there, that's great. I do think we need more out of him, um, or just more out of that position in general. And again, I, I don't know if it's like it. It seemed like he was um, playing a little bit better when Enkedia was pushing him for minutes. So I'd like to see Arteta mm-hmm. like you know get Enkedia back into the mix and and um, make them bit them against each other a bit just to to push Lacazette a little bit harder. But I, I, I don't know if that's like the solution for either of those players. Uh, but there, there's got to be something more that can be done to get another goal scorer on this team. It's just, it can't, hey, we got to get goals from somewhere. It's just, I don't know what, what, what you look to right now, if not your striker position to, to get you goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. And that was... I mean, I think we we saw it on the uh, in the Tottenham game that you can play as well as you want, but if you can't score goals, it it, it doesn't matter how well you play, you know. And I was worried last season at the thought of losing Aubameyang to a transfer and not really, really. He we resigned him, but he stopped scoring goals. But we have no one else that's scoring right now, at least in the Premier League. <clears throat> but all the crosses, Tim. So many crosses. <laughs> we have all of the crosses. Uh, if only we had a uh, a player to get them and score them. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's take this opportunity to cross into the North London Derby. You have to. <laughs> yeah, let's let's just do it. I, you know, I'll be honest. I. The, no offense, Chris, but I, would, I was dreading this episode. <laughs> I, I did. I texted Tim last night uh, after the the Sounders, you know, come from behind, magical victory, and and I said, "You're really gonna make me talk about the North London Derby <laughs> right after the like one of the most memorable Sounders games ever." I, I know fans and stuff weren't there, but it's like talk about going from our, your highest high to your lowest low, man. Yeah, well, there, there was a point in that game when we were, you know, down, when the Sounders were down, um, you know, two two to zero, and I was like, "Man, this is going to be a miserable episode tomorrow if we lose <laughs> yeah. this one too." That's, that's a fair point. That's that's how do you see the glass half full? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll admit that in just my overall view, like during the game, once we went one nil down, I didn't think we were going to win the game. I just, I, I, I didn't see how we were going to score more than two goals. And when we went two nil down, I'm like, I don't think we can win. And I spent the last 10 minutes from the 80th minute on actually just doing dishes and doing chores. Cause I just didn't want to watch the game. Like I had, yeah. it was still on. I was listening for when the, the announcer got excited, but I just, I, watching that game, I think we could still be playing that game. I, I don't think Arsenal would have scored. Yeah, that's probably fair. <laughs> but the, the crosses would still be coming. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, let's 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 talk about that a bit. Let's let's talk about we'll call it Crossgate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Crossgate. <laughs> it, it's you know Arteta seems to have hitched his wagon to this talking point that if if your if your stat lines are are good enough that it's all okay no matter how the game, I mean I wouldn't say it's all okay but you know he seems to think that if it's if you're you know winning the battle as far as 
crosses, um, you know, I, I, if you look at the possession alone in that game, Arsenal should have won, you know, I mean, but that's, it doesn't, the, the whole reason the expected goals metric exists is because all of those stats don't tell the full story because you can have all the ball and not do anything with it that threatens the goal. Yeah. We, I mean, we, yeah, we dominated the rest, you know, the, the stat sheet except for goals. And I mean, and that's like the idea of a, a, a Mourinho team is that they don't care about possession. All Mourinho wants to do is hit you on the break and then just defend for his life. Uh, but it worries me about the the you know the the crosses and the stats and paying too much attention to that. Not to sound old fashioned, I am a very big <laughs> proponent of data based uh, decision making. I think soccer, it's very hard to marry the two because there are so many stats and so many things that change in a game. It reminds me of a way back in the day, there was a guy named uh, Reap. I forget his first name. And he was the one that like basically uh, found English style play from like the 1930s, 40s. I could be wrong. So I'm mm-hmm. sure I'll get an email about it. But early on in the English game where it was the... He noted that the fewer possess- or fewer touches you had, the more likely you were to score a goal. So it informed the English style play where you had the long ball out of the back to the the striker and try and score that way. And it was and it turned out that just like the way he was looking at the stats was just completely wrong, and it created a false sense of it was the pass the number of passes that was the key stats when it, that the number of passes were just kind of a a, a side project story of that. So that's what worries me when you have uh, someone saying that, like, you know, well, we had the most crosses and we had possession. So over the long term, we should be winning. It's hard to say whether those are going to be the correlation, the true correlation to win or if that's or true causation to win or if it's just a correlation to winning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, the stat that's worrying is like you're if you have a ton of shots I would say maybe the odds are in your favor that you're going to eventually get goals. The crosses, especially some of the crosses that we're making, they're not high high probability goal scoring crosses. You know, like they're they're not putting crosses in dangerous positions, like across the face of goal, or you know, getting. We're not not even getting heads to these crosses like that it's not like a bombing or Lacazette or any of our goal scorers are getting opportunities from these crosses so it's it, it's like you're kind of missing the whole story when you're just talking about that number on its own and and it also is worrisome to think that Arteta is looking at this team and thinking this is the path forward like if that's if he if they're playing the way that he's asking them to play. And by all indications, they carried out his game plan to the T according to him, you know, like he, he <clears throat> said they did everything they wanted to do. Um, how do you look at this person, the, the players that we have and think this is the path forward um, as far as goal scoring? I, 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 I don't even know how you look at that game plan and think this is how we beat a Mourinho team. Like I, I it just, yeah. it, there was something that was missing in what Arteta saw and what everybody else seemed to know about that game. 
to to that point though about you know whipping in so many crosses it's i would say the vast majority right where we're not connecting you know that that final pass connecting with the forward in the box is for the most part a relatively low percentage play for for us right now with our personnel that being said i remember it was like really early in the second half against tottenham uh, I think it was Bellerin whipped in a, a ball from the right and was, I mean, was right on Obama Yang's head and, and he just missed. And I mean, it was not exactly a sitter, but it was a chance that somebody of Obama Yang's class and quality should at least be putting on frame and testing the goalkeeper. And he had, you know, the week before, I think something very similar against wolves where like the ball came in and he just, he didn't attack it the way you want to see your your best goal scorer attack the ball around the six yard box. And if he would have had, I think, a little bit more confidence in his ability to head the ball, you know, maybe those goals go in and the, and then the games are completely different outcomes, you know, or different storyline than what in what they end up. It, yeah. it is a, a game of inches in that sense, like you know, he's. The, the, a lot of these opportunities could go, could go the other way, and we wouldn't be sitting here wondering how Arsenal <laughs> seems yep. to be crumbling. But it, it, you string enough of these poor performances mm-hmm. together, and it's not. Um, it doesn't come down to those inches. Those inches start mm-hmm. to become yards and miles, and mm-hmm. like it, it's it's getting further and further away from these. Um, I, I think like. Arteta Arteta's painting this picture like, you know, if we just keep doing this, it's gonna come together. And I, I this this whatever this is can't be the can't be the real plan. I just don't see it. I, I don't know how you continue to try to put the um the ball on our um uh, on a bombing's head and yeah. think that that's the best way to use him. Like that's that can't be why you re-sign this player. Right. That's not what was working for him before. Why would it suddenly start working now? You almost wonder if if Arteta's kind of thinking like, well, the law of averages is going to play out, and some of these are going to fall in. If we just put in enough crosses, somebody's going to get on some of them. And and if you hang your hat on that, you know that philosophy. I, I if I'm Mourinho and I've seen that Arsenal's put in dozens and dozens of crosses per game for the the recent history. Uh, and I, I look at my center backs versus, you know, as Tottenham versus Arsenal's forwards. And I say, I'm going to win 99.9% of those crosses. Go ahead and put the ball in all day. We'll just keep clearing it. And you almost, you know, let Arsenal's attack fall into that trap and, and bank that your defenders are just going to keep winning the ball. Yeah. And, I, I I think it's really obvious when you start seeing the heat maps of Arsenal and, you know, mm-hmm. it stopped being like an interesting factoid and now is beyond to a pattern where it's a U shape. when you look at the heat map, it's a, it's an empty bucket in the middle of the field where we're having no possession, no drives, no action mm-hmm. at all. And it's all being done on the wing. So it's all, it feels like that's the plan and it might've worked early on in Arteta because at least it was a plan, which I don't think, we had under uh, manager. I keep on forgetting it. Unai and Unai Emery. Once yeah. again, forgetting his name. Uh, so I think it worked to a certain extent because we had a plan. But now, 
even I, who I'm, I do not say I'm at any level in a Premier League manager, but you see that I know exactly how Arsenal is going to set up. And then you can very easily nullify something when you know how it's going to happen. But it, I guess the other question is why, I mean, it, the, the question of why we're doing it this way, it's, it's unfathomable, fathomable. I can't say that word right now, but <laughs> I, I, it's got to come down to the personnel that we have. And there must be something that Arteta is seeing on the training field and, and, and saying, this is the way we have to play and we can't do it any other way or, or the, the players are not reacting when I'm trying to do it a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, he's biding time until he can get the, the, the party uh, midfield that he wants, because it seems like he's trying to make this transition into the four, three, three formation. And it only seems to work when he has party available, which who knows when that's going to be again. And mm-hmm. we can talk about that whole situation in a minute, but I, I, I want Arteta to be the type of coach that can take anything that he has and make it into gold. But he's he's eight months into his managerial career, and I don't expect that he's going to take these um, turds that Arsenal has as their players and and polish them up and make them into this uh, Premier League winning um, side. I. I I do think that he's saddled with a lot of dead weight. Um, mm-hmm. But I would hope that he can take that dead weight and still get a little bit more out of him than what I've seen in the last few games. Because at some point, since he took over, this was working. And he had the same players. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it doesn't look like they have any idea how to play anymore. <laughs> so I don't get what changed. Maybe people figured figured out how to play against... Um, what he was doing and so he felt like he had to change change things up but at the very least go back to what was working and then work from there yeah i wonder you know obviously you you always get that new manager bump or you typically get that new manager bump so when unai emery left arteta came in um and we had the little we had the small Lundberg era in there i guess uh, but Arteta comes in and we won some really big games against top teams, right? I mean, we beat Chelsea, we beat city, we beat Liverpool, uh, on the way to the title, you know, the FA cup, we won the shield. Um, and those are huge confidence boosting performances. I'll say that, that Aubameyang, I probably scored in every single one of those games. Mm-hmm. And was it seemed like he was playing for a contract that he has definitely gotten now, <laughs> uh-huh. um, and so maybe has lost a little bit of that. Um, but the other thing, as you're saying, with with Arteta and his his style of play that he's trying to instill in the team, I think uh, you have to learn as as clubs playing against Arsenal, you have to learn how to play them in their new style. And it doesn't always work out the first or second time you play them. We've played most of the teams through the league since, since Arteta's come in now. And there's definitely enough, you know, enough tape for, for teams to watch and study. Okay. How, what are his tactics? Like how are the players adopting what Arteta is trying to do and how do we beat that? And there's enough games under Arteta's tenure I think teams are starting to understand how to play us better. 
And so it's on Arteta, it's on us to really, you have to, to continue to be a top echelon team. You have to keep reinventing yourself or you have to have games where you just play terribly, but you win or you get a point anyway. That's what makes champions. Um, not somebody, not being a team that gets figured out after half a season, then everybody knows how to shut you down. And do you think also that there there is some blame on the players, just the way they looked during that whole game, they just looked like they weren't into it. There, there was, it didn't feel like there was any spark in the team really at all. Or maybe I'm just reading the results into the players, but do you think the players have some onus in playing for the shirt, playing for the badge? Yeah, I think um, what, what I really noticed in the Derby the other day was uh, like, particularly on the left-hand side, we kept having Sokka and we kept having Tierney get the ball kind of at around the top of the box level of the field. And they're looking up to make that cross. They're looking up, they're looking up, they're looking up. And nobody's willing to be that big number nine, put their head on the line, like a Giroud, like we were saying earlier and it's just kind of stagnant people are looking around saying oh i'm here play me the ball but you're not they're not nobody's really making that effort to to move and when that movement stops and that effort stops it's infectious in a really negative way and like when you're doing well and you're scoring goals people guys legs are full of running but when the goals dry up and it seems like it's an becomes an impossible task everything is amplified in a negative way. I think and that seems what's like it's happening to us right now. Yeah. It's going to be a difficult hole to dig out of without confidence. Like you don't, you, you just can't do it without you need, you need goal. You need to score goals to score goals, which is a weird thing, but like somebody just has to break through and, and the, the belief will come back. Um, <clears throat> But I don't think Arteta is doing the team any favors the way that they're um, approaching games. Like, it, it, I, I don't think the expectation can be that crossing is the solution here um, mm. when you don't really have the personnel to take advantage of that. Like, what what worked for um, for Aubameyang before was finding ways to get him isolated one on one, or you know, get him space to work in. He's not getting that especially when you're talking about him playing um, more centrally, it's just more congested where he's playing. So I think finding ways to get um, Aubameyang on the ball in, in, in a way that um, suits him better. And the same could be for said for Lacazette. Um, you know, just taking advantage of what these players are good at. And that's something you saw with um, Tottenham is that they are set up to take advantage of what Sun and Harry Kane are good at. And it, it it's unfortunate to have to compare to Tottenham, really. But mm-hmm. it, 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 Arteta could take uh, a page out of Mourinho's book here. And I don't, I don't think we should play like Mourinho any day of the week. But take, he needs to take a look at this team and not be afraid to a play the players that are are showing the most passion, the most commitment. Like play the kids if that's what it takes, and and also you know look at what these players are best at and gear 
gear your lineup, gear your um, strategies to take advantage of that. Because you're if you can't go out and buy a brand new team, you know, it, we're going to maybe get one, maybe two players every window if we're lucky. And mm-hmm. that's if we can sell, sell players. Um, it's just not going to happen overnight. So you have to work with what you have. And I, I, I don't know if he's out of ideas. I, I, it just doesn't look like that's in the cards right now. And I don't know what, what Arteta is thinking if there's a method to the madness, but it's, it's, it, it felt like I was really in, in Arteta's corner. And now I'm wavering a little bit because I'm mm-hmm. not really sure what he's trying to do. I think the, the style of play, when you're talking about the Obama Yang problem right now, I think the style of play that, that suited his game well coming out, you know, playing off the left wing was when Arteta came in and it was like, it was like the team woke up and remembered how to press defensively and win the ball high up the pitch again. Right. Yeah. It's like something we hadn't seen that level of effort and, and team cohesive defensive press. Uh, and we hadn't seen that in quite a while. I mean, that was really not Wenger's philosophy. He was all about having the ball. Um, and, and we were doing that really well and winning it high up the pitch or right at midfield. And we had the opportunities to break. And, and I think Aubameyang, when he gets, to, gets ahead of steam from midfield going forward, either on the counter or we just win it, you know, around midfield um, from their back line. Uh, they're all of a sudden you got to catch Aubameyang, which is really challenging when he gets ahead of speed He's really quick. And two, he was very often cutting in from the left and earning one-on-one opportunities against the goalkeeper. And, and he is an elite finisher when he is running at you and he can either round the goalkeeper or he can just slot it home. Uh, to me, Aubameyang is, is nothing at all. Uh, as as a back to goal or stand around tiki taka around the box kind of player, he needs space and he needs pace. In my opinion, for him to continue to have the success that he was having at the end of last season, that rolled in because we had such a short break into the you know beginning part of this season. Yeah, I, is. Uh... Tim, did you have any uh, other takeaways on this game? Did anything, any other player jump out at you? Is you know, we, we can talk all day about why Aubameyang or why we're not scoring, but what what else did you think wasn't working, Tim? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's not working as much as it is a, a <laughs> the injury situation of the party was the thing that I think really put the uh, the icing on the shit cake. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and I think. It, I, that, I, that second goal could almost fully be put down to party being injured and how he left the field. I felt really weird about that. Agreed. And I think he, him doing anything would have been better than what he did. If he even yep. just stood in his pay, place and made the Tottenham players at least move around him, it changes how that, that break happens. But him running to the, the, the side or, hobbling to the sideline doesn't help anybody. I mean, he, he could have laid down and at least made Tottenham think about putting the ball out. I don't think they would have, but at least make them think. Yeah. Uh, and there's two aspects. The other aspect of it is, did we start him too early because we're desperate? You know? Because mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine that injury is going to be 
<laughs> I haven't read anything about the injury actually, so I don't know if they've made any announcements about it, but it's worrying the way he went down. Yeah. Yeah, I what a time to lose him too. I, we're going to have some. I think our we're going to average game average space between games is like two point three days through the end of the year, and um, yeah, that's going to suck if we don't have him available. So there's a couple things for for me around their first goal. Like if you kind of dissect what happened. I mean, the the ball gets cleared out to Harry Kane, and and I think Gabrielle's, you know, marking him, tracking him from behind, you know, staying goal side. To me, he's he's not tight enough. I think he, he might be worried about getting turned, but, I mean, we're 15, 20 yards inside of Tottenham's own half, and so I wouldn't be too worried about getting turned and having somebody run 70 yards away from me. Um, but then, uh, Shaka's right there and, and parties right there as well. And neither of them really get close enough to put a legitimate challenge in on Kane. It's like when, when Kane checks back and collects the ball with his back to goal 70 yards away, it's, it's a perfect time to just foul him. If you have to, um, I don't think you're going to take a booking in that kind of situation because he hasn't even turned yet. Right. Just, just be in his hip pocket. And if he, if he does turn and beat you, okay, maybe take a yellow there. But like, if you give a player like Harry Kane that much time to collect in turn and then just play a pass to, you know, son who, who dribbles 30 yards and slots at home, you're, you're not going to beat a club like Tottenham who's going to do that to you. If you give that to them, they will murder you with that type of counter all day in Mourinho system. And I think the other thing is, is when we went one nil down on the road, I know there's not a ton of fans there to, to really affect the atmosphere, you know? Um, but I think going down one nil at Spurs at a Mourinho led Spurs is a death sentence. And that was what? 15 minutes into the game. And I, I just, I don't see us ever, when we go down to a Mourinho team, we don't even really get a point out of it. <laughs> it's just, he's, he's always builds his teams to sit and counter. And when you play that you allow them to have that early goal, it's, it's a tough road from there. Yeah. I mean, I think I mentioned it earlier that as soon as that goal went in, I knew we weren't going to win the game. There's a possibility of a tie, but I, I mean, it's also on our end that I don't see us outside of Europa League scoring a, like two goals a game, you know, mm-hmm. and especially against Mourinho. So I think that was a pretty big, I don't know, hill to climb once we went one nil down with 15 yeah. minutes past. And there's an interesting point they made, I think, in the commentary after the match was over. You know, they're talking about if, if Pochettino is still coaching Spurs and they're up 2 0 at half in the, in the North London Derby, you, as a Tottenham supporter, you still don't really feel very comfortable about your situation, right? That old saying about 2 0 being the worst lead in soccer and the most dangerous lead. Um, but a, a 2 0 at halftime with this Mourinho team, like you said, Tim, even after 1 0, as an Arsenal supporter, I, I had zero confidence we were getting anything out of the rest of that match. 
Well, as a, I mean, as a Arsenal supporter right now, I, I like it, when you have no method yeah. to score goals. Like, yeah. how are you going to come back in any any time you go down? I right. mean, t- Mourinho aside, nobody's nobody's able to overcome zero goals on this team right now. Yeah. Uh, I have one more thing to say before we, we leave the North London Derby because we haven't talked enough about how shitty Tottenham is as players. And I want to bring up Harry Kane and that thing he does at the edge of the box where he undercuts the player and gets the foul. And he did it again in again, and I forgot who, in the second half, and I forget who the Arsenal player, he did it again. And it is so dangerous what he does. And I really wish that he'd start getting called for that because he's going to hurt someone really badly with what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that hip check is so dangerous. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I'm just waiting for one of the the players that he goes after to just rotate just enough to have that make connection with their head or neck because that's, that's when it's going to be very obvious. Um, luckily, uh, as far as I know, nobody's come off of that majorly injured, but it just, it looks awful. I, I don't know how he gets away with it really. And he gets away with it every game. It's every game I've seen with him playing, he does that move. <laughs> and I, I just don't know how he's allowed to continue with it. Yeah. It's, it seems like it's something that gets called for other people when they aren't playing the ball. Um, you can't undercut a player or you shouldn't be able to. Um, and somehow he just, people just look the other way. Yeah. So sorry. I just had to bring up the, uh, the Tottenham shithousery. If we could take some of the attention that, that uh, the refs are putting on, on Bellerin for his foul throws and just refocus <laughs> that onto Harry Kane's debauchery. Let's, Let's see if we can balance things out a little bit more in the world. I mean, that is his fifth foul throw of the season, Bellerin. Yeah, but it, you, it, it was very obvious after the game, seeing all the, the um, posts that people were putting on Twitter and, and um, Reddit and stuff, showing even in that game, there were Tottenham players and other players who are making foul throws and don't get a second glance. It's it's right now it's because Bellerin's got the spotlight on him for that. And they're just looking for it, but it happens constantly from other, other, other teams and other players. So I don't, I don't know how you get out of that pattern other than just to, he needs to put a ton of focus on his mechanics right now and just wait until the refs kind of start looking other directions. I have to admit that, that, I have not seen a foul throw from, from Bellerin. And and now you're telling me that there's been five just in this season. I'm really going to have to start paying attention to his throw. And- <laughs> yeah. No, it's actually been... It's not the first time we've mentioned it on this podcast, actually. He had two in one game, I believe. I forget which game that was. I don't and know that I've had a foul throw in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> it's not It's not that hard. You just, you know, drag your foot or stand with both feet. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of it is is what Caleb was saying there. That like, at the professional level, most players are doing some sort of foul throw. Like, they're not. Yeah. They're, they're not. I think what Bellerin's getting called for is not putting the ball fully behind his head before he throws it in. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And you see that a lot, where players are just like, kind of just like halfway <laughs> over think, their head. Yeah, yeah, and it, I. I think the other thing that doesn't get called frequently and and is very common is. Um, you know, you're supposed to have both feet planted on the ground. 
you're not even really supposed to step into it. Um, it's, it's supposed to be, uh, well, you can step into it, but your feet can't leave the ground. Yeah. So a lot of players will put their whole bodies into it and, and really like mm-hmm. get onto one foot and try to propel it as far as they can go. But you, you technically, you're supposed to have both feet touching the ground when you throw the ball. Yeah, I, always, I always did the method where I drug my just drag your toe on your back foot. That's that's mm-hmm. how I always did it, and you never really have to worry about it. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I was going to say when I was <laughs> taught to play. There was the uh, toe drag was how I was mm-hmm. taught. Mm-hmm. Well, I, he's he's just got to get out of this pattern um, and until they stop paying attention to him again. <laughs> All right. Anything else we want to say about that game? I, I I don't know if there's anything more I can possibly dredge up about that one. Let's uh, let's move on and go for a brighter future and pretend this game never happened. <laughs> Second yeah. All right. Sounds good. Um, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll. Um, talk about a few other things and uh, including the upcoming games and, you know, let's keep looking forward right after, right after this little break. Okay. Welcome back from the break. Uh, Chris has actually come to us with a, cu- a couple questions this week. So let's uh, kick those off, Chris. Yeah. So, so first off, kind of on, on the back of talking about the Derby and, and that debacle uh, along with the rest of our season so far, do, do you guys think that uh, Arteta's already on the hot seat after, after I, what I think has been our worst start in club history, if, if not one of the worst uh, and then a, pretty sad loss to to our biggest rivals who are sitting at top of the table right now or you know what do we do with him do we show patience do we um already start looking for new managers you know are we that short-sighted or or what do we think i i don't think you can look at this team and say oh it's broken because of arteta Mm -hmm. i think he was brought in to fix what was broken and it's still broken as far as the underlying issues and and that comes down to poor, poor management since, well, I I would say some of the signings, even going back to Vanger were uh, not ideal. Um, So digging out of the holes that have been there for quite a while is, is is not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, Building a team philosophy um, and, and style and, um, just overall uh, recreating what the Arsenal way is. That doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't even happen in the, you know, I I think he's uh, just coming up onto one full, full season uh, with the team. So I, I, I don't think you can say this is a failed experiment yet. Um, and and you can't look at those those failings that he's had to deal with, and and you got to throw in the COVID stuff. You got to throw in the just the weirdness of all this, and say let's let's say let's give him the benefit of the doubt, um, and give him the time that it's going to take for any any manager to come in and fix this. Because I think that's the other thing you have to weigh is that if you if it's not him, who's it going to be? 
And if that, if you do go get somebody else, are, are, aren't they going to be saddled with the same players, the same crap that, that our tenants had to deal with? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think the realistic, the realistic reaction cannot be this um, emotional uh, reaction to losses. Like the, this team is going to lose games and it's going to lose a lot of games along the way to try to figure out what's going to work. It It is really apparent that there's, you know, when you, when you win an FA cup, when you win a community shield, it distracts from what's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, but those, those broken things don't um, go away in one transfer window or two transfer windows. It takes a couple years probably to get this, this team going in the right direction. And I think you have to only look so far as the, um, the Pep Guardiola teams, the uh, Jurgen Klopp teams and say those did not happen overnight and they were given time to make mistakes and figure things out and get it right. And Arteta has even less experience than those guys. So he's mm-hmm. going to make even more mistakes and figure, and, and and you have to know that that was part of what you signed up for when you took a, a first time manager on as your, um, as your savior <laughs> of the club. So if you, if they cut ties with, with Arteta for this stuff, you know, that I, I don't think is really in his control. Um, it, it's going to be really frustrating to have to start over with somebody else. Yeah, I think that's a a good point. Uh, For me, it'd be short-sighted to do anything about him now because I think if if you're a manager, if you're some other manager that's interested in the Arsenal job and you see if if you cut ties with Arteta now or soon, maybe by the end of the year or something, if things don't, you know, if things keep going really, really bad for the next four weeks, three or four weeks, I'd almost be scared to be that new manager because of... You got a you know a board with a hair trigger, which exactly. doesn't usually happen at Arsenal. So, yeah, and I think Caleb uh, mentioned it or hinted at it a little bit, which is, who else are we going to get if we do fire uh, Arteta? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like there's a huge pie, stockpile of good managers hanging out, not doing anything. The specter in the room is always Pochettino. I mean, Pochettino's probably locked on for the Madrid job, anyways. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, would a manager like Pochettino want to come to Arsenal besides the whole Tottenham yeah. thing. Besides that, like we don't, we aren't exactly a stable team that looks very attractive to a manager right now. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're looking, I mean, there's talks of maybe Inter's manager and Zoggy feeling pressure if he doesn't qualify out of his group, which I actually haven't looked at the results today from champions league. I, uh, and the other like, I just can't think of anyone else that would be willing to come to Arsenal that would be an improvement on Arteta. I think all you could go, hope to get is somebody with experience. but And even somebody with experience is going to hit some of the same issues. I just think there's things that are ingrained in in Arsenal right now. And it, it comes from the ownership down, and it's it's historical stuff. It's stuff that's just part of what Arsenal is at the moment. And I think Arteta recognized that. And, and that was part of the appeal of him was that he understood what Arsenal could be and was supposed to be and wanted to right the ship. 
but he, even he has limitations, both based on his experience and just the fact that ownership has not changed. It is what it is. And there's been a ton of shakeups um, since he took over. And, and, and that's, you know, losing Sinlehi and um, just the <clears throat> mishmash of, of stuff that's happened in the front office. I, I, I don't know that any any manager could come in and just fix that stuff um, right off the bat. It takes time and it takes stability. And I think the constant rotation of managers is the downfall of a lot of these big clubs. I, it's it, Manchester United has maybe fared better than we have as as far as like the post um, Alex Ferguson era. Um, they've they've gone through several managers. They've um, gone through tons of players and tons of money to try to figure out how to find stability again. And I think they've um, definitely done better than Arsenal have as far as finding success, but it's still all over the place. And they, I, I don't know that they've really found their person in, um, in Oli. So I think it's um, a matter of time until they have to shake things up again. It's just, it's not a, this whole uh, manager carousel is not an easy game to play. And it's the one we're still trying to figure out um, after Wenger. I, I don't think anybody really knows how to play that game well. And, and it's, um, it's it's Russian roulette. You know, you don't know what you're mm-hmm. going to get. Mm-hmm. I, I, also, point. I also think that uh, we are, as Arsenal fans, transitioning from a different age of managers, which is Arsene Wenger is a type of manager that we're never going to see again, just like we won't see an Alex Ferguson again. You're not going to see at the top levels a manager stay at a club for 20 years and literally shape the entire club in their image. And it's something that I think we're going to have to get a little used to is the idea that managers are here for a couple years and then are going to move on, which just seems so foreign because, you know, for all of our really lifetime up until, what, two years ago? (laughs) <laughs> we had one manager for the club, you know, we didn't know anything different. So it's also kind of tempering our expectations as fans, as far as what, what this looks like. Yeah. I think that's, that's the thing that, you know, going back to the winning the FA cup and the, the shield um, it's, it kind of made the um, rebuilding process easier. Um, but I think it, it, it definitely changed expectations when we got back into Europa League and, and that's not something that's easy to shake off. Like I you know, once you've had success, it's like, oh well, we should be able to continue to do that, right? And like you did we we're in Europa League, so now we're just gonna ride that into Champions League and everything's gonna be fine again. But it that, <coughs> excuse me. It that's oversimplifying things and, and maybe um, just made made things look a little um, too easy. Like I, I don't think Arteta. I, I think Tim mentioned it earlier. Like he just all, all he did was put in a plan, which <laughs> was was lacking. And I think it, um, it it was easy to see that that new manager bump because p- players suddenly knew what they needed to do. Um, but now we've hit the wall and it's like players are looking for what they need to do to get out of this. 
and it's it's not an easy fix. I don't think that Arteta has all the answers yet, and, and he's learning how to be a manager the hardest way. It's it, and and there's only one way you can really do that, and that's just by going through it. And, and he's, I'm sure he appreciates that this these big losses and um, any loss right now is a learning experience, but it's only a learning experience if you learn from it and make the the changes. So I, I hope that he figures out what, what needs to happen and doesn't hit the wall and go, Oh, I, I, I feel like some of these managers just go, Oh, I, I don't, I don't have the players. I can't do it. I need to get more players. And then it becomes a thing that, that Manchester United's dealt with where you just have this constant, um, player overturn and it's 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 as bad as managers coming in and out because you've you there's just no consistency you can't build anything around that and all all signs are pointing to pogba leaving man united in january as well i would take him <clears throat> oh i wouldn't oh, i would take him it's another heart. that's another jaka it's just no. slow no <laughs> slow, I, slow slow that man is I, this is getting way off <laughs> topic but that man oh i would take him in a heartbeat he's a world cup winner and he, when he's playing for a good team he shows it yeah uh but that's going <laughs> way way off topic uh i think one of the things we do have to do, and I, and we've talked a little bit about this, is that it's also our expectations. We have to recognize that our run in the Champions League, how many years in a row was it? It was uh, 15 years in a row? I think like 12 years, maybe. Yeah. That, yeah. that was like how, how much of an achievement that was. That, it, you know, it isn't a birthright. <laughs> you know, it isn't just an automatic thing. And it's really, really hard, especially in the Premier League where you have... You know, right now you have about eight teams all vying for four spots, and I but think, I think if for those twelve years it wasn't that was not the case. Like it's it's become a lot harder. I don't sure. know. I don't. I th- I think I I do agree that there there ha- there has been an in- increase in those teams, but I think we have to recognize that it was an achievement at the time, and that that's the the difference right now is that we have we're fighting against wolves we're fighting against uh everton who's dropping off we're fighting against all these other teams that are coming up and really Leicester city yeah exactly so there's 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 that part in it i think i don't know like to get back to chris's original question in my mind he's not in a in the hot seat as far as like i want him to be fired tomorrow if he doesn't you know get you know wins but he is like you know, in in a car with a seat warmer. Like it's you know his 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 rear end's getting a little warm because there is a point where you can't let him continue. I mean, for me, I guess it would be relegation. <laughs> like you would have to let him go. Yeah, but uh, I I would say the minimum goal is to get into Europe, and then if he doesn't get us into Europe, he's in a very difficult position. Yeah, and I think. I mean, I like Arteta as a manager. I like some of the the tactics and philosophy that, that we've seen as a result of him coming in. Like I said, more up front when he first started uh, last season, I, I felt like we had more of that. Maybe it was just the new manager bounced and now we've settled, but we, we had more energy on the pitch that was lacking for a while under Emery. We, guys were chasing down. Uh, their opponents that were defending high, def- pressing as a team, not as individuals, and we saw some fruits of that. I don't, I, I don't think I've seen that much 
of that in recent games. And like I said, I don't know if Arteta's changed the style, to, you know, purposely, or he's just not getting the same the same effort and commitment out of out of the guys who were playing. Um, which in and of itself is is a talking point. If you're not getting the same level of effort you are used to seeing, why is that? What what's going on between the manager? And the players there is something to potentially just kind of keep an eye on or keep in the back of your mind. Um, but I, I think from a business standpoint, you know, in the Wenger era, we were used to seeing him find nobodies or just get phenomenal deals on on players that you never should have bought for the for the price that we bought them. And then he develops these players and sells them at a premium, much to our Often, you know, times our, our disagreement, like, because we see Nasri leave and win titles. We see Van Persie leave and win titles. We see Fabregas leave and win titles. All, and we were saying, well, why did, why couldn't we keep those players? But, you know, Wenger had a method to his madness and was able to keep us in the top four for so long because he, he had an uncanny ability to do that kind of business. And I think the kind of business in the last few years... I know you guys don't like to talk about the Ozil situation, but we're just bleeding money and getting nothing back for it. Um, Pepe, we made a huge investment in, haven't gotten much out of it yet. Maybe too early to tell. He's got a ways to go. Willian, for me, was a kind of deal. It makes me scratch my head why we're paying him almost 200,000 pounds a week for three years, and he's already in his 30s. Um, so to me the manager can only do so much with what he's given. Um, and sometimes players don't work out the way you think they will on paper, but I, I just, I don't think Arsenal's a deep enough club right now. Like we used to be in, in some of the Wenger years where we can get by anyway. I think the players that we have right now, we really need to rely on, to put in performances week in week out and and for one reason or another that isn't happening at the moment. So are you saying that's a player issue or a coach issue? That's a, that's kind of the jury's still out for me. For for some reason I for me I don't see the same level of commitment from the players in terms of like that the high pressing style that we seem to adopt when Arteta first showed up. It mm-hmm. seemed like we were a team seemed like like they were surprised because Arsenal, who is not known for their defensive press uh, and their ability to win the ball back, were suddenly doing that and doing it well. And it was allowing us to get opportunities on the break, like I was talking about earlier with Aubameyang, streaking down the wing and having one-on-one opportunities. And that's born out of the ability to win the ball back efficiently and effectively. And I haven't seen that lately. And, and I think our results outside of Europa League, where we know we should be winning, but our results in the Premier League uh, have not been good. And I, I'm not sure if it's the players or if Arteta's made some tweaks and, and said, well, maybe let's not do that. We're going to do something different. It, it's kind of hard for me to, to determine at this point uh, if it's one, the other, or some combination of the two. Yeah. 
yeah, what's what other what's your other question for us this week? So I, I thought it, yeah, it would be an interesting uh, point to bring up. You know, this week we we started to see in certain markets in England, I think up to about two thousand fans. Uh, you know, returning to stadiums. And I, I think kind of the first question, the first part of that is, you know, do do we think England, do we think the world is ready? Because this is happening in MLS and some other places too, where, where some fans are starting to come back. Um, just kind of curious what your guys' thoughts are on that. And then I think we've we've had this whole year, the second part of this is we've had this whole year you know, or since March really with, with no fans in stadiums and now, and we've had obviously enormous social justice movements, black lives matter type things. And, and now we're starting to see fans come back. And, and one of the first things we see is in the Millwall match against Darby County the other day, uh, Millwall fans booing the players taking a knee at kickoff. Do we, are we are we ready, kind of, as a society, to to welcome some of those types of fans back and and all that comes with them? <laughs> um, let me I'll, let's just break it into two parts. And the first part, yeah. I, I am actually an advocate that, and I've said this a couple of times, I actually don't think we should be playing sports at all, let alone having fans back in the stadiums. In the U.S., I'm more knowledgeable about the the COVID situation in the U.S. than I am in England per se. But I, I mean. You, nowhere in the u.s should have fans and i don't think from what i understand i read the guardian every uh, couple of days and it just doesn't sound like they're doing much better and it just seems an added risk for something that is i i, I just I, I i i don't see a good justification other than money and optics that is allowing fans into the stadium it's not safe i don't think mm-hmm. and I, I think it's it's awful that fans and as I said, I don't think sports should be going on right now. But that's a whole <laughs> other question. I think like the um, as far as people sitting in the stands, they're very spaced out and they're outside, so I'm not super concerned about them. Although I do think like the based on the numbers, the decision to allow fans back in is like more of a Oh, we've had enough time. We should probably get back to this. So it's more based on this feeling that enough time has passed more than the the numbers bear out that it should happen. Um, But I'm not super concerned about 2000 people in those giant stadiums sitting spaced out um, because being outside with masks on is very low risk. Uh, And I think that's, um, as long as you can control the flow of people through the corridors and that sort of thing, it shouldn't be an issue. But to your point, Tim, the real problem is just players. And you see it a lot in a lot of sports, not just soccer, that this, um, you know, for the most part, the Premier League's been fairly good about keeping their players safe up until they have to go out on international duty, um, which is where we've seen a lot of the COVID cases come up. Uh, But that I think that's the, the athletes are the most um, at risk right now, just because they have to be near people. But I'm not I'm not super concerned about the 2,000 person um, capacity. I think that's a, a, a safe level um, 
just based on how much space they have to work with and, and the outdoor setting. The, the, the issue is, in, it, it isn't necessarily an arsenal problem. I think you are probably correct with a stadium like Emirates Stadium, where they have the staffing to uh, to help keep it under control. Although you read stuff about how they, uh, basically the uh, poor stewards are running a game of whack-a-mole as far as trying to keep people <laughs> in their say, seats and in the section and safe. There's also this, sure. this thing of, you know, when you're going to your seats, it's it's fine and good when you're in your seat, but as you're coming into the stadium, as you're going through the corridors, things like that. But the bigger issue, I think, for England is I have a good friend, and I'm not going to call him out, and I'm not going to call his team out, but he follows a uh, lower-level team in England. I believe they're in the uh, third tier, and they were allowed to have fans in. And seeing pictures from the the match... They were all just congregated behind the goal like they used to be. They weren't social distancing. They were, you know, kind of just doing things as normal. And that's, and, you know, that team doesn't have the stewards to do it. The ground is also a much smaller ground. I think their capacity is like, you know, a 10,000 seater stadium, which definitely shrinks the area <laughs> around. And if you right. don't have the uh, the willingness of the people to to play it safe, which I think, you're not going to have. And if you don't have the stewards available to really enforce it and like, you know, that stadium actually has terraced, uh, you know, stands. It doesn't even have seats that you can easily do that. So I think that's the bigger worry. And then the other way I have is that it creates a level of unfairness when you do have regions that still aren't allowed to have fans in. I forget where it is. And in England, there are several areas that are, aren't allowed to have fans mm -hmm. in. And does that create a really unfair advantage for the teams just by a happenstance of geography, they're able to have fans? Yeah, it's hard to gauge how much the 2,000 people limit can uh, change a game as far as the atmosphere, but it's better than nothing. I mean, it, it, take, taking the risk out of it, I'm, I'm happy to hear real, real people cheering again because it's such such a better experience than the pumped in crowd noise that they had for so long um because it actually makes sense like there's they're cheering at the right parts it's not just this drone of white noise in the background what are your thoughts chris i i think it's you know I, i'm you know like from a financial standpoint i, I wonder it's like well you know if you have two thousand fans does that kind of like does that cover your operating costs for the day you know, instead of just operating the stadium for, for every match kind of, I, I have to be at some kind of a loss, you know, financially. I mean, as far as atmosphere goes, you know, 2000 fans is not going to do a whole lot, especially kind of all spread out to, to Caleb's point. It is kind of nice hearing, even if it's small, hearing legitimate crowd noise for a change, but you know, you you got to say you're kind of playing with fire as, as Tim, you talked about in a smaller ground that doesn't have the resources uh, like, you know, they, they have at Emirates stadium where all the guys are just going to go stand. They're going to go buddy, buddy behind the goal. <laughs> and you just, you got to wonder if that, if, if there's going to be any situations in England or around the world that, that that's going to turn into a liability for a club. Um, allowing that kind of behavior to happen i'm i'm kind of with you tim you have to ask why are sports even being played right now um on the other hand 
I can't control that. So if they're going to play, I have a really hard time not watching. <laughs> I know some people right. like Sounders or Arsenal, you know, the clubs I follow or other sports, they're like kind of boycotting it entirely. They're not putting anything towards, you know, they're not buying any team gear. They're not watching to add ratings on TV. They're not doing anything um, until the health and safety of the general public can be accounted for, which is still a ways off. <laughs> I mean, they're better people than I. I don't like. I, I'm I'm a sucker. <laughs> you know, like when yeah, I'm, right. I'm a sucker. On. I just if it's on, I I can't I can't not watch it. <laughs> I'm a moth to a flame <laughs> if what he's on TV. But but getting to your second point, and I think it's something that's really important to uh, say. I think it's tempting to say, oh, it's just Millwall because, you know, Millwall definitely has a reputation sure. that precedes it. And I think it was you that tweeted out earlier that uh, whoever they were playing last, uh, when their players scored against Millwall, they uh, knelt and held their fists up, which I thought yeah, was... QPR. QPR, yeah. yeah that, yep. that, that was, a, that was all, all over social media today. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool response to it. Mm-hmm. But I think things like this is makes it really important that the players still do it. You know, it feels like a, a, uh, I don't know, cheesy thing that the players are like kneeling and putting the face out, but it's these reactions to Millwall that the Millwall fans have that shows that it's there. And it's, it's something mm-hmm. that's important to, to constantly bring up. I think having fans there is going to have, you know, it just with certain teams, it's going to happen. I know that, you know, Chelsea has its certain element that does mm-hmm. that. Um, I think several teams have uncomfortable issues with their fans that they maybe need to uh, deal with. I think it's going to be much more noticeable when players start playing in the countries, especially in Eastern Europe. I'm trying to be very nice about this. Countries, especially in Eastern Europe, that have a little bit less progressive views (laughs) about Mm -hmm. race. I think that's going to be much more noticeable. Uh, But I, I... as far as it being a reason to keep fans out, I just, I don't know. I think it just, I think maybe those fans, maybe it should be a, a good behavior policy. If those fans do that again, that maybe you shouldn't allow those fans back in for Millwall. I think it's interesting with, to kind of tie it back to like having say uh, an arbitrary number of like 2000 fans um, allowed in, I think it's interesting to see, I think that we're going to see in, in smaller ways. I mean, these things are still going to make headlines when, when people boo uh, while the players are taking any at kickoff. Um, but it, it makes headlines, but imagine, you know, this happening in a full stadium. Imagine if, you know, I know not everybody in a full stadium say, I don't know what Millwall's capacity is, say 30,000. I don't know. Um, but when there's enough people, the boos are really loud. And so imagine if you're the QPR player who goes and, and scores a goal and goes and takes a knee and, and puts your fist up, uh, you know, in solidarity for the movement, uh, doing that in front of 2000 fans, not necessarily super intimidating doing that in front of a packed house, uh, in a place like Millwall, you, you have to wonder, does, does that same player have the same confidence to do that, to, to make that act in that environment and of a full stadium versus no fans or versus 
minimal fans like a couple thousand. Yeah, I think that the the fan factor can't be um, downplayed uh, too much. I think that the we were talking about how Pepe would play better with fans, and I think like mm-hmm. fans definitely have a huge psychological effect, um, bad or good. So it's uh, more fans the better as far as um, that goes. But it's uh, yeah, I, I don't maybe QP, the QPR players would be less inclined to do that with a full stadium. That's for sure. I, I mean, and I, I, I would hope that they, it, it isn't a majority of Millwall fans, even though, as I say, Millwall has, has that reputation. And mm-hmm. that if you had a full Millwall stadium, you wouldn't necessarily be able to, I don't think the whole stadium would boo. And I don't think a majority of the Millwall fans would boo, but I think it is something that, clubs like Millwall and clubs in general have to take more responsibility for. I think uh, a lot of times clubs will try and walk that fine line of trying to almost defend their fans in a way. And I actually haven't seen any response from Millwall officially about it. And the fact that there's 2000 fans means that they know every single one of those fans that was in the stadium and with the amount of security cameras and things, they could definitely pick out who was booing at that point and give sanctions Yep. So. All right. Well, we, we should probably start wrapping things up. We've gone extra long this week. Um, but I will say we've got two games coming up. Uh, Dundalk coming up on Thursday, which is pretty much a dead rubber game. So we're bound to see lots of youth play- or younger players on the starting lineup. So. That'll be fun to watch, hopefully, and uh, a nice break from the uh, Premier League play. Uh, and then Burnley on Sunday. So that's going to be hopefully a redemption game for this team. We'll see if they can bounce back from a poor poor showing at the uh, North London Derby. And I, anybody want to make any guesses to how Arsenal is going to play on Sunday real quick? I mean, I'm I not going for it. <laughs> not it I, I mean I I hope th- I, these, these are both should be wins and it, I would be very disappointed if we don't win both these games Dundalk game doesn't really matter that much I'd, right. and I'd prefer us to play a very weakened lineup and you know keep Pepe in to get a minutes keep Nunes out in keep some of those young players that are you know knocking at the door but that one doesn't really bother me one way or the other but the uh, the Burnley game must win is a very strong word, I think. But it's a should win, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we can't can't uh, can't go out of there with a loss. Yeah, I think it's I think that would be very damaging for the season and just for everything if we <laughs> if we lose. So yes. Um, Tim, you want to do a quick fantasy update before we wrap things up? Yeah, yeah. And uh, just a quick fantasy. Do you play fantasy, uh, Chris? I have actually never played fantasy of any kind. I, that's kind of the one, the one angle of sports that I, I've never participated in. Um, I like playing, watching, playing video game versions. Um, but for for whatever reason, fantasy is just I've never gotten on it. I think. I'm not really the managerial type um, in, in my life and business kind of stuff. I like to, but I like to participate. Yeah. So that's, that's fair enough. I mean, 
I, I'm not going to speak for Caleb, but I'm not great at fantasy. I just mm-hmm. been playing it. And uh, so we have our little league with the, the podcast and we mean me and Caleb have been kind of going back and forth a little bit. And it's, it's really become bragging rights between the two of us because neither of us are going to win the league. We're pretty poor. Yeah. <laughs> but Caleb, you got 61 points last week. What were you doing? What was your secret? I I participated. <laughs> yeah, players in. Like, just, even if you're not doing well in the league, I mean, you run the podcast. Couldn't you just say you're doing well in the league? Ah, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> everyone else can see it too. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I personally, and there are a couple of players. I'm looking at you, Umkar, who's still in first place, who are running both Kane and Sun, which I feel like is cheating in a Arsenal podcast fantasy league. But I think I remember saying you were going to dock points for anybody who. Yeah. Uh, who uh, chose some of the? Yeah. I think I'm, I may go back and just remove all points from all Tottenham players because I can go back <laughs> next week, and I am unemployed, so I have the time. Uh, <laughs> I got 53 points, which is better than last week, but not stellar. Caleb's catching up. Um, again, Omkar is still re- leading the league. I wanted to give out a huge shout out to uh, Granley, who got 86 points this week. Only starting Son. He, they didn't do the two Tottenham players that a lot of people are doing. But still, eighty six is a is a pretty good return. Um, so yeah, that's fantasy league. Awesome. All right. Well, we should uh, wrap up this episode, uh, Chris. I first, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on. It's we clearly had a good time because we we almost went two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's been a, a, an awesome awesome time having you. Yeah, it's been great. I really appreciate you guys having me on, and and. Uh really enjoyed the commentary uh and we'd like to thank all of you for listening thank you so much for joining us for yet another episode uh we love hearing from you with your questions so if you want to uh contribute to next week's episode uh you could do so by sending us an email uh we are you can do that at westofnorthlondon at gmail.com or you can send us a tweet uh, on twitter we are at w of n london And we'd love to hear from you with your questions, comments, or anything else you want to send our way. Uh, If you would haven't subscribed to us, uh, please go do so. We we like to make it super easy to get our next episode, and subscribing is the best way to do that. And if you've already subscribed and would like to help us out a different way, go ahead and leave us a review wherever you pick up your podcasts, Um, whether that's just giving us some stars or writing something out. We'd love to, to get that out there so that other people can find us. Yeah, and you don't even have and, to leave a nice review, just a five-star review. Yeah, just that. <laughs> Keep it simple. Just cl- All you have to do is click. Uh, if you like the music that you heard at the beginning of the show, that's Bobcat. They wrote that awesome theme song for us, and you can find their website. It's bobc.at. They have their social media and uh, latest album there which is no course to follow so go check that out and i think i just blasted through the end of the show real fast so (laughs) take a deep breath we did it and as always see you at the next gun show